Hello everyone and welcome to episode 10, season 2, season finale <laughs> of the New Romantics. <laughs> not quite sure really why I'm saying season finale, it's not like the whole cast is going to be sort of gunned down by Tony Soprano, although you never know. I'm Will Eaves and I'm a novelist and poet. My name's Sophie Scott and I'm the director of the Institute for Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London and that just means that I'm a person, I'm a scientist very interested in brains and how they work at a level that makes sense to sort of understand our experience and our behaviour. And at the same level of inviting understanding, the point of this podcast, The Neuromantics, is to read a scientific paper provided by Sophie and a story or a poem provided by me and to see how they speak to each other. This month we have a very interesting paper on what makes some words funny. And we're going to be looking at that alongside a famous nonsense song by Edward Lear and a less well-known short story by a marvellous young writer called Florence Sonnen, which is a piece of surreal body horror, which is not unfunny itself, but asks us lots of questions about what is real and what's imaginable and how we understand concepts of the real and the imaginable in language. But we'll start with the paper. Yes, the paper is called Wrigley, Squiffy, Lummox and Boobs. What makes some words funny? It's a very interesting paper because it's trying to use basic experimental psychology to answer questions about about humour. And what they've done is they've taken a study from uh, 2017 by Engelhalter and Hills, where Engelhalter and Hills did this quite interesting thing. of Instead of trying to work out a theory of humour, they just got people to rate how funny words are. So it's just taking humorousness as a semantic property of words as, you know, imageability might be or um, abstraction might be or emotion might be. And they got people to rate nearly 5,000 words. And of course, what you find is most of the words aren't funny at all. And some words were funny. And this is basically the study's just setting out the norms. What were the what were the funny words? Were there differences based on age? Was there differences based on, you know, were you a male or female? And in this study, they interrogate that database. So they've collected no new data. What they're doing is they're taking the data that exists and they're going in and asking some slightly different questions. And they're approaching it from this idea of can we learn anything about theories of humour from this database? And the problem with theories of humour is that, at the risk of enraging everybody that works in this field, which I routinely do, it's very hard to come up with theories of humour that can account for everything that's funny. So you have, there's an idea about superiority, so we we find things funny because they make us feel better when we're laughing down at somebody. And you can definitely think of humour that works that way, like um, those hilarious racist jokes of the 1970s would fall squarely in that kind of category. But anything with a sort of, you know, someone doing something foolish, there's an element of that. And then there's jokes, the idea that humour is about benign violations and those are um, situations where there's something wrong, something's inappropriate, something's in the wrong place. And that's funny because it's benign, because there's nothing harmful. You'll notice in that context the word benign. There's theories That's of a sort of incongruity Incongruity, theory, it? but it's lots of incongruous things are horrible. Mm. You know, I was coming back from a conference on humour where people were talking about this. <laughs> I was on a tube chain in Chicago and someone got on and started, like, started singing and for money and that was, that was a bit mortifying. And then the woman sitting next to me joined in. <laughs> I just, no, I was not enjoying this one bit. And 
I'm laughing now, but actually at the time it wasn't even slightly funny. I was just, this is just rock. I didn't know what to do. I felt very awkward and yeah. it was uncomfortable and the whole thing was slightly just, it was incongruous in a way that was not funny to me at that moment. I remember my Fiona saying, my friend Fiona saying something like that about um, a lady who sang at Victoria Market in Melbourne um, outside. You know, she sang, sang for money and she... Well, what can I say? It wasn't a, it wasn't a perfect um, voice. The interesting thing was she she only had one leg. So the incongruity was partly that she that she sang not very well, but very confidently, and and she you know she had one leg. Now there's nothing inherently funny about that ex- until, of course, my friend perhaps uncharitably suggested that she wasn't quite sure what had come first, <laughs> the sort of poor singing, uh, or the loss of the leg. <laughs> Because it was conceivable. That was an event. Conceivable, but (laughs) the loss of the leg was (laughs) something to do with that. Anyway. (laughs) And the the problem with, there there, there are at least two problems with theories of humour that say, like, this theory can explain any humour. One of the problems is that you can always think of things that don't fit with them. So it's very hard to explain puns by saying about superiority or like a shaggy soul dog story there's often you know the the incongruity may not mm. be there may be just um so it's there's always other things you can think of that, that that won't quite fit with it and in fact as they point out in this paper this has a scientific basis in that all of these theories of humor take jokes and explain why they're funny they don't explain all jokes but they're explaining that set the problem with them they net they can't generate things that are funny you can't use these theories to say if you do xyz then that will be funny because actually mm. humour doesn't work that way. In the same way, it would be very hard to have a theory of um, music or literature. Why is why do we enjoy literature? You wouldn't expect there to be one answer to that. And that's... you know. Well, I can feel the word culture ringing large yeah. bells in my background yeah. and indeed language. And aesthetics and individual tastes. And your individual tastes can be as much about what you've been exposed to in the culture you've grown up in and, and about your own you know, what you would like to be, the person you would like to be part of this particular endeavour. I can remember turning on the television and seeing Mr. Mrs. Brown's Boys for the first time, which for people, uh, it's, it's it's a very, very popular sitcom about a big Irish family which is performing in front of a live audience and they're having a whale of a time. And it might as well have had a big sign at the start saying, Sophie, go away, this is not for you. You know, mm. I was like, why, why is this even on the television? What's going on? Whereas Stuart Lee might as well say, this is for you. You know, he might as well yeah. have my name on the show. Sophie, come in, this is what you want. And that's my, that's my sort of aesthetic evaluation of sort of how much this is this part of the sort of thing that someone I would like to be would be part of. You know, we never very rarely articulate it, but that's one of the things that feeds into our appreciation. Yeah. Lots and lots of things do. What they've done here is they turn it round and say, can we learn anything by looking at humour as a as a semantic property rather than saying what makes a joke funny? Just say, well, people find these things funny and those things not funny. What what are the things these things the funny things have in common? And interestingly, when they do that, they do start to find some patterns of that actually suggest many of the theories of humour have something to them, but no one rules. 
So you find words that are insult words tend to be judged as funny. A rude, you know, so being rude about an idiot, the word idiot is considered mm. to be funny. Actually, they find that it's it's particular kind of phonemes and components of words that are funny. That's it. So it's, That's, the, yeah. it's the k sound. I was going to get to that because I think one of you can fi- so you find some of these elements of things that so insult words are funny. Words that kind of are taboo words are funny. So that that violation something in the wrong place that those are funny. But then you also find words that, that it's actually very, very hard to explain anything semantic about them at all. So exactly like you say, the k sound is funny. You know, in the Sunshine Boys, there's a whole mm. of matter of speech about k- cockroach is funny. Yeah. And all that. that and he's ab- it's absolutely right. Empirically, from this study, the word... This word well, they quote k- from Neil Simon, don't yeah, they? Yeah, of course. He talks about yeah. you know, various K sounds. You know, Casey is yes. a funny word, yes. but you know, Robert Taylor isn't. And there's also the sound ooh. So the the vowel sound ooh is funny. So a word like ankle is rated as funny, and a word the word boon are both rated as funny. Although mm. there's nothing really semantically humorous about them. And then there are other words like bebop, which are rated as funny, and they don't have any of those things in. And that seems to be just they they sound funny in the mouth. They are fun to say. So there's there's some of it does seem to fit with our cultural thoughts about what you know violation words being funny and you know kind of insult words being funny but there's something about the sounds themselves and just the form of some words that just sounds funny to us and you can't get to a semantic explanation of that simply it is a very interesting paper and i can see how you can isolate something whether it's exactly semantic or not about a simpler kind of proposition as you can manage i.e a single word Mm. i can see how you can do that and you can sort of plot the incidence of ratings of funniness versus uh, expletives versus proper nouns that have the cuss out and so on Mm. all of which comes up in the paper but of course the problem is that having isolated that and having found that these particular phonemes have some sort of funny quotient you're then left with the problem of what happens once you introduce another word or more words because the permutations then are going to sort of make they're going to make nonsense Mm. really the original findings that unfortunately it's the context behind the idea and the impossibility of opening it out in a coherent way that's that's really the that's my main problem with this and actually it also starts with the sample you know which five thousand words uh, how did you get these people? What, what, none yeah. of which has gone into, but which I think is very, very important. But partly because, as they say, at a very, very late stage, uh, and they try to sort of brush it under the carpet, there's there's a big problem with the dictionaries used. There are three experiments involved, and one of them, the late stage experiment after the linear linear digression stuff, a late stage comparative exercise involves... I think a bit of software will work in America, not here. Whereupon you go back to the list of words and you think, this is very, very peculiar because for any, for anyone who's either American or British, at least half these words clearly don't register. Mm. So it, it's, it's quite difficult to know what to make then of the ratings. You, you've absolutely put your finger on it. What you, they criticise the theories of humour for saying you can't generate predictions from these mm. theories. You just explain why you think that joke was funny. And of course, what you can't do from this is say what sequence of words would be funny because ankle, bebop, boon might be funny, it might not. It's not enough. It's very well done, but the crucial thing, without wanting to be too simplistic about it, the, the crucial thing they're missing is the element of surprise. Totally. And unfortunately, that is what humour sort of is. It's the unexpected. I found myself thinking weirdly about girdle and 
complete mathematics, which sounds like a very unfunny thing to say, but you know, he, but you know, he, he, he was, he was the one to point out that, of course, there, there will always be true statements in maths that you can't prove, mm. and, and if that's true about something as dry and kind of sort of consequential as logic mm. and logic theory, then imagine how difficult it's going to be <laughs> exactly to, yeah. to work out what is funny. Um, from a given string of words. So I think what is good about this is I think it let me go back to the humour literature and say, actually, A, you wouldn't imagine there would be one theory, but actually what they've shown is that you can find elements of all of them, mm. plus stuff that just has no explanation whatsoever. Why the k sound? Why the oo sound? Would that even happen in another language? Well, you know, that's, that's you know, exactly what we, I was thinking. If we were French, yeah. if we were Italian, if we were... Um, in you know Matt speakers of Chinese, would any of this work? And it would be amazing to know. It would be fantastic to have the opportunity to do that. But you would need to do a completely different study because you'd have to start from scratch with new words. I think you'd have to. I think you might also have to contemplate the possibility that what you're looking at there is something preverbal. And you're really thinking about how people control sound and vocalizations mm -hmm. and why that might be related to the unexpected and humor. Because um, when yeah. you do, when the oo sound is a controlled version of exhalation, it all is so, so well. It's all controlled exhalation. Yeah. Talking, all of it is. It's the, that, that's. But isn't it really, isn't it closer to relief though? Ooh. Um, ooh, no more than er. It's it's that it is it is your voicing it's it's all controlled exhalation speak mm. speaking is a completely different way of breathing i'm not saying there couldn't be some other link and i think even if you found that k and oo didn't work in other languages that wouldn't mean to say it isn't touching something quite basic for english speakers in terms of how we are connecting almost with the you know like some non-linguistic aspect of the sound so um, there's a very classic finding, I think does speak to what you're saying, uh, by Roy, Roy Davis uh, in Reading in the 1970s and 80s, which was picked up by Ramachandran more recently, but Roy Davis did it first. But he showed that if you show people a sort of zigzaggy line and then a loopy line, and you say, just two squiggles, one's very jagged and one's very loopy, and you say one of these is Takiti and one of these is Bulabu, people will very consistently say the jagged one is Takiti. And the boobabu one is the loopy one. That works cross-culturally. You don't because they're nonsense words. You don't have to speak yeah. that. And people do hear that. Now the interesting thing there is people often say, "Well, the takiti, the the plosives in t yeah, that's what's pulling the jagged thing." And the boobabu one, boobabu, <laughs> is softer. And actually, it's not. But it's still a plosive. So yeah. it's just the vowels. There's something about a e e and yeah. ooh ooh. ooh that is one sound spiky and one sounds rounded. And that is cross-culturally found. And that's definitely getting to something that is a relationship between sound and what things feel like. That is probably, I think, getting towards what you're describing. And there have to be more examples of it out there. It's kind of gone very, very people are always sort of stuck with the drawings, but you think, well, what would be the other things that could be linked to that? Is this kind of playfulness or enjoyment of making the sound? Is that part of what we're picking up here.
the difficulty, it seems to me, in the paper is that there's a pretty four-square attempt to say X produces something. Yeah. And it seems to me that a lot of humour relies upon the inversion of that expectation. One of the things they say is that disease is found to be a non-funny word. Mm. But what this leaves out across the whole field is parody and satire. In, yeah. I think in which which is a very very important part of humor in which the things that aren't funny become funny because they are being re-engineered used in a different context used to make a point I was thinking of Uncle Jack in Ripping Yarns do you remember that who, who <laughs> has endless so his bubas, endless diseases <laughs> Um, and you know it's Michael Palin's respite from his dreadful family is that he goes to see some Uncle Jack see his who's wounds collects, and sores. <laughs> collects infections. <laughs> but I was also thinking, um, you know, the risk of being a real uh, like solid fangirl. But I remember when I was reading um, your when I, the, the first book of yours that I read, the Nothing to Be Afraid of, and there's a bit in it quite near the start where you're describing. The, the female main character is, is thinking about a male character and he's described as something something of an experimentalist when he comes to when it comes to the human relationships or something like that and it's just this kind of digression and that, that really made me laugh um partly because i thought that was true you know i, I know those i've met those i hadn't heard them described that way before and it absolutely resonated but also there was this kind of like it felt like an aside you know, and, and it, so mm. the, the, the sort of performance of the the voice, there's an intention. Yeah. You were trying to make the reader smile. You could have described him as being, you know, you, you could have described that in a way that just made you think, no, he's probably not a good person to be in a relationship with, but it wasn't funny. Yeah. And you, as you, you, play, as you say, funny. it's also sort of digression. It's, 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 it's off stage. And I think that's another part of who's in and who's out in terms of the sort of focus group of humour. We like to feel... At some level, a lot of people like to feel that they are in on a sort of private joke. Absolutely. In humour. Yeah. So the notion of the four-square definition slightly misses the point. And at the same time, I think what this brings up is that they may be trying to pin down humour itself as some sort of abstract property misses the fact that the approach to humour is the thing that constitutes funniness for most people. Yeah. Because... Whether you feel that humour is a sort of private thing that not too many people are in on or that you feel it's something that you can join in on because other people find it funny is a really, really interesting social determinant. And it's why, funnily enough, that like you, I've always quite liked the idea that the things I find funny, I may only find funny. The, the element of the private joke is quite important to me. In that, and I don't think that's because I think I'm... There's a superiority thing in that at all. I think it's some it's something to do with actually taboo that I that it, for my own private purposes I can enjoy things that I would not want to say publicly because I know mm. they would give offence. Whereas I think for a lot of people the notion of something you know rock stadium gigs at which kind of quite a lot of offensive things are said licenses their feelings of aggressions and they feel better about it being shared with other people i don't think it's even necessarily aggression i think it's just it can just amplify it sharing something that you think is funny with a lot of other people who also think it's funny 
makes it things funnier. You enjoy it mm. more. I'm sorry if I've said this before. One of the things that's really striking about lockdown was trying to consume things that would normally have an audience associated with them in a way that they did not. And it was it's everything. Everything's less for it. The audience enjoys it less. The performer enjoys it less because you don't have that kind of shared element to it. You can't hear and see the laughter. You're not Do, part don't, of it. Don't you find that? I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely true. But don't you find that when too many people are laughing at the same thing? It begins to get slightly sinister. Well, I think it is also the case that because there's a there's sort of an element of agreement when something's happening on stage that, you know, we're all laughing at this because we, we all find that funny and we're going along with it. And you can see that, you know, if, if then people end up laughing at something that actually probably put in some other context, they might not do so. Mm. You know, there's there are, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing and it can go mm. off in a weird directions. I'm very sorry I've told this story before, but I went, remember going to see Eddie Izzard at Hammersmith Apollo and it must have been 1998 because he was not long after Princess Diana had died and his whole set, I can summarise as, my mum died when I was a child and no one cared. And <laughs> it was really, it wasn't very funny because he wasn't mm. trying to be funny and he did all these interviews I'm going to make comedy sad and he was crying and it was all very, you know, and it was a very interesting thing he was doing, but of course the audience were like, we want to see uh, Eddie Izzard. Mm. Everyone's going, oh, Mrs. Bad Crumble and ha ha, and everyone was laughing no matter what he said. And he was talking about losing his mother at a very young age, and it was just upsetting. But everyone was laughing because that's what you come to see, and that was one of the yeah. most unpleasant evenings I've ever had. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. must hate us because we won't stop laughing, and he's not doing anything that makes suggest for a second he wants us to. It was very. Well, it's very worrying, difficult. isn't it? Because yeah. it, it proves the point of the the. the, the authors of this paper make at the outset which is that I mean status does have a lot to do with humour but yeah. particularly the settled status of a comedian yeah. who it is assumed will make you laugh it's sinister just for that reason alone mm. when he's telling a very sad story because it makes you realise that it doesn't matter whether he's telling the truth or not there's a certain yeah. investment it, there's an investment in him to be funny so he can say the most you know the yeah. most painful things and we will still laugh at them that's of course a very that's a very ancient tension that's most famously caught i think by shakespeare's shakespeare's fools um, particularly yeah. the fool in lear who is stroke isn't taken seriously the whole point of the court jester is to frame criticism and ridicule of power in such a way that power is not actually affected by it and the door is then open to telling the truth but of course, it means that the truth can be disregarded by whoever is most powerful in the room, and whoever is most powerful in that case is the king. But here, the shoe is on the other foot, because the the king is, is the king is the fool. Mm. That's what's weird about yeah, our, our, our contemporary yeah. notion of the jester is that it's the jester who is the powerful figure. Yeah. And how that transition has taken place in society is an interesting one, and perhaps bears inspection i don't know what the answer is i think it must have something to do simply with the emergence of the middle class bourgeois yeah. liberalism individualism you know capital in in other words power resting with the individual rather than with divinely appointed monarchy or or the state that's a bit i mean they, these are quite sort of big things just to shoehorn in but i but it is interesting that the fool who goes from being the underdog, albeit with a position in court, to someone who is actually the emperor. It's fascinating. It is very, very interesting. I think that it retains that element of um, sort of somehow diminished by, by, the, by the status of being, by the role of being the, the joker, the fool, the comedian, in that 
one of the things that is very noticeable, we, we never, in our culture, we don't think funny things are as properly artistic as dramatic things or tra tragedies. So if you look at, um, I mean, the example people always give, but it's true, if you look at what films get Oscars, they never go to funny films. No, and true. it is really hard to make a funny film. Yeah, yeah. Very, very hard. It is very, very hard to write funnily. It is extremely yeah. hard to do this. If anything, it's as hard as any other art form. It's certainly no less hard. And we never give it that status. So well, I think the answer is, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And the answer is that it's still in some way subversive. It's subversive and dangerous and it or can be. And it's also somehow childlike and diminutive. Everyone wants to think that Eddie Izzard is standing up and riffing off the top of his head or Russell Brandon. Of mm. course they're not. They're not going to do that. They're not going to go on a tour of stadia around the world where they have not prepared their material. They know exactly what they're meant to do. They're artists who've written all this stuff. They're going to... So, but we want to believe that it's just off the top of my head. It's just spontaneous. And of course, sometimes it is, but most of the time... But it's that, again, that sort of... The, somehow it's, you're just like innately talented and just, just pouring forth from it's you. It's pretty you much always not. It's pretty much always absolutely. You know, rehearsed. I mean, yeah, absolutely. In, in general, performance is always heavily rehearsed. You're not going to go near a big audience no. thinking, I don't know what's going to happen tonight. Another example of that, the prize not going to the funny, is, and this perhaps contradicts my earlier point about, you know, the, the, the social relation of the jester and the king having changed, is that, is that you can typically on a panel on news night or question time, you will have one sort of light entertainment figure who then normally gets the biggest rounds of applause when he, he or she speaks truth to power. Yeah. But somehow it doesn't last. No. You know, it does, it, on, at the moment, it feels woundingly precise and revelatory. Mm. And you think, ah, you know, the, the, the turpitude of Pretty Patel or Boris Johnson has been unmasked at last. But it doesn't, it doesn't last. Yeah. And it's interesting that it doesn't last. And I think that the reason it doesn't, it's almost a wavelength thing. The hit of comedy and revelation is a big spike but yeah. it, it collapses very quickly. And that, that, I think, is because it's all, or most comedy, is a bit divisive. Almost in the act of laughing at it, you forget what it was. Mm. There's a really good essay by Jonathan Coe called Sliding Giggling into the Sea about when Boris Johnson became funny on Have I Got News For You? And actually, he didn't make any jokes at all. The person who made the jokes was Paul mm. Merton, mm. Um, who was getting bored with, in his lot, continuously badgering Boris Johnson, who at that time was just a, a posh journalist, you know badgering him about that Darius Guppy stuff. And uh, we'll put the show notes, well, the details in the show notes. It's not, doesn't, it's not a story that covers Boris Johnson in glory. But basically, Paul Merton got bored and made a joke about it. And the audience were relieved to have something to laugh at. But the laughter sort of flew around the room and settled on Boris Johnson. Mm. So it didn't do any, it didn't puncture anything. It enhanced something probably no one could have seen where that would lead us. Um, in terms of... But it's quite difficult the, to control, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's anarchic. It, it's also a sort of misdirection, I think. Yeah. You know, you're, you're looking in this direction, but actually yeah. the, either, the, either the original joke or the subject or something is elsewhere, which accounts for it settling on, you know, someone who was supposed to be the object of the joke yeah. and becoming, suddenly becoming the author of it. Yeah. That happens also quite a lot. Yeah, when there are other emotions in play, because really what you're talking about there is, as you said, actually, at the beginning... Um, that the audience is relieved to have something to laugh about. They want to laugh. I think that's yeah. the crucial thing. Yeah, yeah. You know. And this is and this is a very interesting paper, but it doesn't get us anywhere near yeah. that. The, yeah. the performance, 
the intention, the craft of putting it together, that's a thing that happens in a space where there's an audience. It's not a thing that happens without an audience being there. If there's no audience, there's no laughter, and there's mm. no laughter, it's not funny. I mean, you mentioned Stuart Lee earlier. One, one of the interesting things he does, he's normally quite careful to make sure that there's some, not just because his material is, is quite contentious and he tells a lot of, you know, says some pretty outrageous things, but he, he deliberately tries to divvy the audience up a bit yes, yes. so that there are people who aren't quite sure what they've come to see. And I think he does that because he's a sort of you know, quite a classical performer. He likes the idea that you get a bit of tension going in an audience mm. and then you try and solve the tension in some way. Mm. It may not always go in your favour. Yeah. You know, it may go in the audience's favour, all the people who walk out. Yes. But he's but he's got enough of respect for it, for the spontaneity of it to sort of... Uh, the spontaneity of the performance, not the preparation. Yeah. He 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 prepares insanely. Yeah. He's an incredibly precise sort of... Everything is written, everything is yeah. you know, computed almost. But he does know that that doesn't account for what will happen. His way of randomising it in is to sort of, you know, um, what people used to say called picking on people he just it's a bit more intelligent than that that's the way of making it interesting i think for him and then the audience that get that part of it a lot of the audience they know they're in on that joke they yeah. know he's trying to do that mm. there'll be like a handful of people in the audience going my god he's lost his mind and that yeah. actually is what's you know that's that's helping that's yeah. what's that's the, the, the sort yeah. of fractionation is built on that I think at this point we might look at the nonsense song that I brought along, which is very famous and I loved as a kid and still love. In fact, I would probably say it was my introduction to poetry, called The Jumblies by oh. Edward Lear. Are you going to read it to us? Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's actually quite surprising. I'd, I'd <laughs> forgotten that it was quite long. It's about yes. sort of six stanzas. I'll just read a, a couple of the stanzas. If you don't know it, it, it came in a, a fairly late book of his. So he'd... Lear... Um, Victorian, interesting, valetudinarian, epileptic, very sensitive man, um, wanted to make his living in it and did as an artist, an excellent artist, particularly very good watercolorist and botanist, painter of um, botanical specimens and landscapes. And he really started writing limericks, pretty much standardised the form for the children of friends he knew and compiled and published them in a book called A Book of Nonsense uh, in, I think, 18, around about 1855 or something like that, 1850. And then later elaborated these, started writing nonsense songs, longer narrative songs and nonsense songs was published in 1870. And of course, by this point, the penny had dropped that really... These were the things that were making him money and th these were going to be the things that constituted his life's work. I'm not sure he was ever very happy about that, in truth. But of course he had this extraordinary gift. So here's the beginning of the jumblies. They went to sea in a sieve, they did. In a sieve they went to sea. In spite of all their friends could say, on a winter's morn, on a stormy day, in a sieve they went to sea. And when the sieve turned round and round and everyone cried, you'll all be drowned. They called aloud, our sieve ain't big, but we don't care a button, we don't care a fig, in a sieve we'll go to sea. Far and few, far and few, are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, 
and they went to sea in a sieve. They sailed away in a sieve, they did. In a sieve they sailed so fast, with only a beautiful pea-green veil tied with a ribband by way of a sail to a small tobacco pipe mast. And everyone said who saw them go, Oh, won't they be soon upset, you know, for the sky is dark and the voyage is long, and happen what may, it's extremely wrong in a sieve to sail so fast. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. And they carry on them on their on their voyage and the water comes in and they wrap their feet in paper and they go back home and they're celebrated as people. And it's a sort of parody of Victorian adventuring. To the extent that it is a parody and to the extent that it's absurd, it's also satire of, I suppose you could say, an element of colonialism. But yeah. it does have it does have an amazing innocence about it too, which I think is real and genuine. And the really important part in it, it seems to me, is that innocence mm. and its relationship to humour. Because there's something about a child who has understood what a sieve is or had it explained to them that it's full of holes and sailing in it mm. and all the impossibility of these things actually happening in the real world that's peculiar to nonsense verse and has something to do with that inversion of order that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's very, very important to a child both that this is imaginable and delightful but also that it couldn't happen really. Yeah, absolutely. The, the push and pull between the two is both exciting and charming and at some level reassuring. The reason that's interesting is if you think of something else that, that is some other literary form that's irrational, like a ghost story, you immediately begin, I think, to see the difference. Yeah. Because in a ghost story, the whole point is that there are other plausible reassuring explanations for the events that happen for the strange apparition on the beach with the sort of things in the air that could just be bits of plastic in a dust devil but it's not a better explanation because the thing you're persuaded of in a ghost story is the fact that it's the irrational that has become true and has made its claim on the real world and the everyday and the child is protected from that in nonsense verse and that's what makes nonsense verse delightful. Yes, I mean, as you say, this could, the actual bare bones of the story could be sad and sorry. They've gone on this godforsaken voyage and they haven't got enough food and they've gone for years if they make it back. And it's not. It's sort of perfect as an image and as a ridiculous tale. But it's also, I mean, kind of the, the reason I was thinking about this when I was thinking about wriggly, squiffy lummocks and boobs was that the sort of... The, the sound shape of it as well, yeah. the sieve sounds and the way he plays with that. It, again, there's something, it, it's... It's on a mass pick, isn't it? It's yeah. water coming in, yeah. And you've got the that point that you make when you talk to my students, when you talk about form and content and you haven't just got like your jelly mould of form that you then pour content into. It's, you know, the actual, the way that the, that the story and the form of the words and the sounds of the words perfectly works with the imagery. It's yeah. sort of joyful. It's quite an unusual poem for him because the subject of the limerick, you know, a man with an enormous beard that has birds nesting it, or the woman from Norway who gets squeezed flat in a doorway, you know, they're, they're often individuals who come a cropper because of some conventional action or aspect of society. And you find the, the third person plural they coming up a lot 
in the limericks. Mm. And the they is always some sort of slightly alarming social force or power. You know, they say you can't do this. Yeah. They is sort of society ranged against the unlikely peculiar person who's either anatomically odd or has improbable amounts of facial hair, whatever it may be, they is something faintly suspicious mm. and and perhaps disordering and violent. And here the they is very different. The they are the heroes. Yes. He's, turned, he's, he's completely turned it around. They introduced straight away with no sense of who they are. No. You don't get to the definition of the jumblies until the end of the verse. And going back to this poem, that surprised me. I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that you get the story before you get the explanation of who they are. So, that was a stupid question. I, they are, I wouldn't think they are not the jumblies, are they? Yeah, they, they went are. to sea in a sieve, they did. Yeah. I thought they were going to the land where the jumblies were. No, they are the jumblies. Okay. They leave and they... Oh, well, I see what you mean. No, they are the jumblies. Are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green, their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. Yes. I'd I, I always... And this is a, what, when I was a child, I thought that they were going... That The whole yeah. point was that they, they were off on to find the jumblies. That no, was it's, the, it's, okay. it's, it's seeking and return, because that's, 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 that's the point of the exploration, is you go and you come back. Yeah, but you are the jumblies. But you are the jumblies. Right. That, that's the, You're allowed to mark me down severely for this one. That, that's the other, I mean, I suppose that's the other point of it, is that, you know, the... That you go in search of the exotic, but you are you the are, exotic, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and you are the exotic to the people, whoever yeah. they are that you find. Leah went to court. He, he sort of, I think it was when he was in Corfu that he decided, you know, he had a terrible chest and he had epilepsy. He was very ill and, and he, the British climate didn't <laughs> suit him. So he went to live in Corfu and he was chasing this, he was gay, really, and he, he, he chasing this barrister who he was desperately in love with and it wasn't reciprocated, although, although they remained friends all their lives. And I think Franklin was stationed out there at some, you know, job and Lear decided that this would it would be good to sort of tag along with him. And at the point that he was in Corfu, I think he decided never to live in Britain again. So at that point, he becomes... The other, if you like, he yeah. becomes, you know, someone who, who who lives abroad, and and I think he didn't, as someone who all felt, who always felt himself to be an internal exile. Being an expat was only an extension of something that he'd already felt, and in yeah. fact, I probably, I, I think he, I, I'd, I'd, I'd wager that he, he wouldn't even have seen himself as that. He would have seen himself as as fully translated into mm. another sphere. I mean, obviously, it's easy to say that he, you know. He, he, a wealthy person, relatively wealthy. By that point, he had a bit of money, but he didn't come from riches. He he came from an enormous family. Mm. I think he had something like twenty brothers and sisters, a lot of whom you know died in infancy. And I think his mm. father, well, his father was a stockbroker, but not a very successful one. So it's quite it's quite an interesting background. But it's not he's not doesn't fit easily into the bracket gentleman artist. Yeah, it doesn't quite work like that for Leah. But it's, I, I think that it's, he's important for the future history of not just nonsense verse and comic verse, but for surrealism, really. Yeah. And all that came with that very important European drive in the, in the first half of the 20th century to both harness the sort of machine age and the sort of... Uh, strange almost algorithmic production of absurdity that you get in early surrealism yeah 
but also to try to produce a new kind of way of looking at the facts as they are, to resist encyclopedic rationalism yeah. and to resist a, a totalizing view of the world. Which perhaps brings us to the other short story, which we'll just look at briefly. Oh, no, I loved this. I absolutely loved it. Do tell it, me she's written lots more. No, she's really not written that much. She and So Florence Sonnen, who, who comes from Luxembourg, and I have to declare an interest, Florence is a, is a student that I, I taught very briefly at Warwick. I think she's a very remarkable writer. She's got a book coming out called Archetypes. I've written a little forward to, to that book. She's an incredibly precise, clever writer who, rather like a brilliant performer, knows how to annex outrageous conceits mm. with extraordinary control and verbal restraint. Yes. So this is a story called The Hook, and it's about a young brother and sister. They're in their early 20s, and they've come back from university, and they're not named, their parents aren't named, they live in a flat. It's summer. It's hot. I think from the description of the flat, we're invited to suppose it's it's more or less where the author grew up, which is it's either Brussels or it's Luxembourg or something like it. it's Belgium or Luxembourg. Yeah. It's one of those low-rise apartment buildings, and they live in one of the flats um, with a with a balcony that looks like a sort of lip. It's very well described. And something peculiar happens one day. They're sort of floating around aimlessly in the long vacation. They're parents are both academics and very very busy and in their separate offices not paying any attention to what's happening they only have frozen mm. meals you know which are heated up for lunch and dinner and the brother is told really from the point of view of the the first person is the is the sister mm. the brother goes missing during the day and she finds him in the apartment building's attic in the sort of roof. He's broken off one of his toes. But there's no blood and there's no gore. And this is a really this is the this is the point that's interesting. That that means it's it's neither comedy nor horror. And I don't quite know how she hit on this idea. Cut a long story short, he eats himself. Mm. And the story is her cataloguing the few days in which he gradually makes away with uh, first of all his extremities then his legs, then his arms. And what's more, the parents approve. Yes. They think, but... it's a, they think it's a wonderful project. Yes. He's found a project. But there's no blood involved. And that made me think, do you remember that marvellous thing that um, Charlie Crichton, who directed a, a Fish Called Wanda, said about the famous opening sequence where the builder's concrete block falls and squashes the lady's dog. Yes. And he said, if it falls on the dog and then it's lifted off and there's blood, it's not funny. But if it falls on the dog and it comes off and it's a rug lying there, yeah. it's funny. Yeah. It's the absence of blood. So there's crisis, but somehow there's no consequence. And here, the, the whole story plays with what is consequence, what is, what is actually happening. Yeah. Because we don't have any blood. It's made very clear that although he's eating himself... Sort of becomes not matter when he's eating. Mm. It's sort of that he said there's a bit when because he stops eating the family meals. Mm. He doesn't eat because he's got his project, and but then he explains that it's not going anywhere. It's not going into his stomach. It's not. It's just 
goes. So, yes, yeah, so you're being taken somewhere else with the story. But the vagueness of the project is, 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 is I think, really important. Because yeah. in, in rather the same way that all those people laughed at Eddie Izzard, even while he was telling them something awful, because the, the content of what he was saying almost didn't matter. Yeah. It was the fact that he was the comedian, it was the status that yep. mattered. In the same way here, the parents, it, it doesn't matter what <laughs> they're... This, about this awful thing that the son is doing. Yeah. It's the fact that he's occupied. That yeah. is enough. Absolutely. There's something, something uh, important to do. It's rather... To, shall it's, I read that bit oh, out? Oh, please do. It really is so... It's published by Nightjar Press. I, it's a limited edition of 200 copies. I hope that it will eventually be available in Flo's selective or collective stories when they come out, but at the moment it's not. Although you can Google Nightjar Press and see if there are any copies left over. I'm going to read this bit that describes both what he's doing and how the parents respond. A few mornings later, we stood in front of the bathroom mirror, brushing our teeth after breakfast. Two fingers were missing on his hand. He hadn't thought things through and had eaten the index finger on his left hand, despite being left-handed. The toothbrush sat unsteadily between his middle finger and thumb. When he leaned forward to spit in the sink, a frothy pink blob went down the plug hole. He began to eat less and less actual food, he was saving room for his project, he told us. Our parents were pleased. That word soothed something in them. At breakfast, he sat like a haughty balloon, watching the rest of us cut into our thawed variations. I no longer need food, he declared. It's a circle I have closed. I feed on internal nourishment. I shivered at the word feed, but my parents exchanged smiles. Their admiration stank stronger than my brother's breath. Later, he announced he wouldn't be present at the breakfast table any longer. He needed to preserve his energy for his project. My parents agreed. Whatever you might call what your brother is doing, my mother told me after I complained to her one morning, at least he's being productive. He has found something to do. You can't possibly think that what he's doing is productive or even sustainable, I said. My mother sighed. The coffee mug steamed in her hand. Of course it is, she said. Look at his face when he talks about it. It's like a lantern. He is working towards the future. What future? <laughs> my mother poked the tip of my nose with her index finger, as if calling an elevator. She had to get back to work. His own future, she said. As should you. We're all waiting for you. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it's it? It's perfect. The parents, I thought, were just absolutely oh no, the whole thing it's like a world in what how many pages is it it's, it's a handful but it, it was just fantastic it's very very it. it's very very terrifying and, yes um it's very terrifying and, and funny although the parents are, are, are principally the ones who are funny and, yes. and, and the, the children rather terrified yes. you also don't know whether the narrator is terrified or not it's this very very important thing about any kind of sinister writing about leaving the door open to a more usual world and it's the fact that you've had to choose the thing without you quite realising it. You've chosen to believe the thing that's impossible that makes it disturbing. And again, it's like ghost stories. This, this, this is the sort of very, this is the very important thing. You, you've been given the opportunity to go with what you know is rationally true, but you don't take it. Because at some atavistic level, it's the thing that can't be true that is true. Yeah. You know, which might account for a lot of credulity and... <laughs> society i suspect anyway there we are i thoroughly recommend all these things definitely definitely more florence sonnen more really? florence sonnen more um 
Edward Lear. More Edward Lear. I was. They, they really did. I recommend people go off and read both together because it did. It definitely. I could see where you put the two together. There was something. They pulled you in different directions. One was magical. One was funny and terrifying. But there's a sort of similarity of this unhinging you, but keeping you absolutely. That's a very good way of putting it. It's it's as if you are the hinge, and you're constantly having to decide which way you turn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there we are. Um, The Florence Sun and Story is called The Hook, and it is published by Nightjar Press. The Jumblies is by Edward Lear, and you can find in any collected nonsense by uh, Edward Lear. And we are the New Romantics. We are. We, We need to ask you, if you're enjoying this podcast, to go to something like Apple Podcasts and... I believe the terms like and subscribe. I mean, that means you have to tell Apple Podcasts that you liked it, if you did like it. If you don't like it, please remain silent on this topic. And if you subscribe, that also helps us because that means that people were more likely to come across our podcast, which would be nice because much as I enjoy this, it would be nice to know somebody else did. Indeed. And we will be back for season three early next year. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.